0: Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode on Muslims of the Melting Pot. Today we have yet another special guest, Miko Peled is an author, writer, and human rights activist who was born and raised in the city of Jerusalem. He is now one of the clearest voices calling for justice in Palestine and is the author of the book The General Son: Journey of an Israeli in Palestine total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Because it's the only religion that
1: acts like the mafia. They're not immigrants. They're they're invaders. They're not immigrants. This This
0: clash of civilizations. And if
1: they're not going to learn to assimilate, I don't want them in this country.
0: But hold up, that's not really who we are. Perhaps the American melting pot model is not an accurate depiction of the true Muslim American experience. And perhaps the goal is not to mix. But if it isn't, then what really is? To assimilate or not to assimilate? That's the question. I'm your host, Sara Salimi, and you are watching Muslims of the Melting Pot. Thank you, Miko, so much for being another guest on my podcast. I'm Very, very excited for this conversation. One thing that I really try to focus on with this podcast is you said something in one of the speeches that I saw from you, and that was how you said the truth lies in the personal story and not necessarily in the national narrative. And I think that really comes at the heart of this conversation because I rarely hear those personal stories as, you know, a testament to what's really happening, because the national narrative is that, you know, Israelis had this right of return, that the Arabs attacked and that the Israelis won, and, you know, how the Arabs are the ones who didn't accept the partition plan. The Arabs, you know, are always the aggressors. Your personal story, though, I would say, as the son of an Israeli general, is very different. You've seen all of this firsthand. You've been there. Your family was quite literally, they they saw a lot of these things unfolding in front of them. So I want to start from here. Tell us how this experience was for you growing up. What did you see? What did you learn?
1: Well, thanks for having me on uh, on your show. He was part of this generation of giants, of Zionist giants who were young officers in 1948 and who defeated these massive Arab armies that came to destroy the small Jewish state and then he was a general in 1967 where once again the arabs according to the narrative of course tried to come and destroy the small jewish state and then there was this massive victory and and so he was he was a member of the israeli main command you know high command planning this attack in 1967 and uh, like i said of course he's participated in the ethnic cleansing in 1948 and so on so you know i grew up eating this whole narrative up it was wonderful i mean my dad was a hero are you kidding me right i had a great uncle who was a president and i had all these really important people in my family who who are part of this great creation of the state of israel so i was you know i grew up very proud of all of that right um, and then when my dad decided you know when my dad became interested in palestinian rights i mean it happened gradually but after the 67 war that's usually that's when he came out and said we need a palestinian state we need to make peace with the palestinians you know right. it came from a very zionist perspective Very patriotic Zionist perspective because he wanted to maintain the spoils of 1948, and he said this is how we do it by compromising on 1967. But of course, nobody cared. Nobody wanted to do even that. So um, he became an outcast. So that was that was his that was his trajectory, and that was his his life.
0: I know we usually hear about the fathers most, since they're kind of seen as the forefront of it all. But I was also very intrigued by the stories you mentioned about your mother, where you said she refused to settle into a Palestinian home that the Israelis had offered to her. And this was, you know, you were saying when they had forced the Palestinians out of their homes in 1948. What was that scene like in person? Did you see this or was this something she narrated?
1: I was born until 20, 20 some odd years later. No, she was okay. my older sibling, my, my older siblings were born. This is 1948, West Jerusalem, which a lot of people don't realize, there was a, there was an absolute 100% ethnic cleansing campaign that did not allow a single Palestinian to remain in West Jerusalem. Right. And there were many neighborhoods, Palestinian neighborhoods, quite wealthy, you know, well-to-do neighborhoods in West Jerusalem. Their homes are still there. The na- many Most of the neighborhoods are still there. And she was 22 years old, already a mother, living in a tiny apartment, sharing an apartment with her mother. And these homes were all one of these beautiful homes. And at 22, she had the, the, you know, the moral courage to say, how can I take the house of another mother? How can I move into the home of a family that are now refugees? And exactly. she refused. And, um, I, you know, at 22, when you're living under some very you know, pretty, pretty difficult conditions to refuse something like that. I mean, she did the right thing, obviously. And what's unfortunate is that, we, it was an environment where doing the right thing was unique. They're called Arab homes, but nobody ever asked where the Arab, where did the Arabs go? Um, what happens? Again, the ethnic cleansing of West Jerusalem was so, was so complete that uh, the only thing that remains are the homes.
0: Mm-hmm. And inevitably,
1: when I tell the story at a lecture, there's always an older Palestinian man or woman who come to me in tears because they were from there. They had a home in West Jerusalem, in one of these wonderful neighborhoods. And they're like in awe that my mother made this uh, this right choice. But I think the fact that we even talk about it, that it's, that it's unique, that she made this choice, is indicative of, of how serious the problem was.
0: Do you recall how it was like growing up in Jerusalem, how the relationship was, if any, interaction between Israelis and Palestinians? How was it like for you growing up there? No, oh,
1: no, there was no interaction at all. It's the most segregated city in the world. you know i was a i was young young boy in 1967 when israel occupied east jerusalem and uh you know it would be a novelty to go to the old city you know walk around but only around with 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 a bunch of israelis you never walk alone it's dangerous there was nothing there was not a single not a single interaction you know we go to different schools we speak different languages we you know in the neighborhoods the residential neighborhoods in east jerusalem look nothing like our neighborhoods are no sidewalks Forget right. playgrounds, forget grass, forget, uh, you know, spaces for kids to run around or for people to, there's none of that. And Israel wouldn't allow it. The the of Jerusalem would not allow Palestinians to develop anything like that.
0: I remember this was interesting. You had said this, that um, the first time you actually sat down to talk to a Palestinian was when you had come back to the U.S. How effective or how, what role do you think it played that there was such a strict segregation between the Israelis and Palestinians, specifically painting the Palestinians as the aggressors. What role do you think that plays or continues to play in the way that Palestinians are seen?
1: Well, it's the only way to maintain an apartheid regime is by always characterizing the other as dangerous and uh, dishonest and dirty and lazy and on and on and on. I mean, what, what, what you know colonialist regimes do everywhere. The only reason it's that way is because of segregation. Because Israel wants it to be that way. They don't want Israelis and Palestinians to to get together. And today, you know, and today of course, you know, East Jerusalem is filled with settlements. Both the old city itself, but also all right. these neighborhoods that were taken, lands that were taken from Palestinians and massive, you know, neighborhoods were built.
0: Why was it ethnic cleansing that you would say was, you know, the tactic that was taken forward? Because These people had experienced the Holocaust. They knew what it was like to live under conditions where you're exterminated and wiped out. Why do you think that that was done to the Palestinians?
1: It's interesting for many reasons, but one reason is that the term or the designation of a crime as a crime against humanity was created after the Holocaust, after the genocide of the Jews, by the Nazis. the world realized that there are crimes that are so heinous that they're considered crimes against humanity. And three years after the Holocaust, after the genocide of the Jews, a state that calls itself the Jewish state. And at that point there were no Holocaust. Very few Holocaust survivors went there. So the Zionists who were in Palestine had nothing to do with Holocaust. These were not survivors of the Holocaust. They began committing not one, but three crimes that are considered crime to crimes against humanity the ethnic cleansing that you mentioned which was a you know it was a planned ethnic cleansing it was a planned campaign to right. kick out the palestinians from palestine or palestine was very successful they managed to kick out almost a million people almost a million people were thrown out of their land out of their country out of their homes many of them having to you know dying along the way there are massacres that are still being uncovered today i mean we know we know of some of the massacres that are well known, but there are massacres that people don't even know that are being uncovered today, as we speak. The ethnic cleansing was part of this campaign of genocides to get rid of the Arabs of Palestine, or what the way right. the Zionists call them, the Arabs of Israel. And then what they did was they they installed a state that was in fact an apartheid regime, because to gave rights to people like me at the expense of people like you at the expense of Palestinians, very very simply, you know. And that regime has been going on for 75 years. This, In other words, it was never planned to be a democracy. It was never planned to be pluralistic. It was always intended to be a supremacist apartheid state. And that's exactly the way the Amnesty report, you know, described it in, in their report last year.
0: You mentioned how if you were to look at, you know, the scene of how Palestine at that point looks, there's almost nothing left for the Palestinians. So now you're looking at a point in time where they want to do peace talks after it's almost like saying, you know, the deed has already been done and now we want to come to the negotiating table. Over two decades have passed and now we're at a point where it's like, what what does negotiating do? What's there even left to be talking about?
1: Nothing. There's nothing to talk about and I don't believe that Israel is a, is, is a partner for peace anyway. Israel doesn't want peace. Israel wanted to, to create a small entity which is the Palestinian Authority that would follow their rules and collect the trash and, and do what they're and do what they're told and that's exactly what this is.
0: But it's always framed in a way where, oh, it's the Palestinians who don't want to cooperate. It's the Palestinians who don't want to make concessions. But you know, from what you're saying it doesn't seem like that's really the case. Why do you think that there is such an insistence then?
1: Well the only way what Israel does Israel is, is you know they've got they've got a very smart strategy. They've got And they always have by the way before israel was established the zionists this is how they operated they had their kind of the outwardly face they had all these well-polished diplomats that were traveling around the world my grandfather was one of them in the 20s and 30s traveling around the world uh speaking to jewish communities trying to convince them to immigrate to palestine speaking to leaders around the world trying to explain to them why zionism is a good idea and these have always been very polished um people highly educated they're all doctors and they had you know degrees and they shaved they didn't look like jews and so the europeans liked them and they could relate to them and so in the early days you had the these characters like my grandfather like golda meir who is now they made this movie about her like she's some kind of a hero these are all people who are perpetuating the idea of a genocide and apartheid states today is no different Tanyao and a few other Ambassadors who speak English well and look very polished are out there spewing this nonsense, these lies. American politicians are lining up to kiss Netanyahu's hand while Israel is, the Israeli Knesset is, is, is passing legislation, racist law after racist law, after racist law, I mean, you know, at a record speed and the murder of Palestinian goes on wholesale. And uh, right. the crimes against Palestinians, the torture, the, uh, the arrest of children and the detention. Uh, I mean, on and on and on, denying people water, home demolitions by the tens of thousands. Uh, and I'm talking about 1948 Palestine, I'm not just talking about the West Bank.
0: Right.
1: You know, denying mm-hmm. Palestinians water, electricity and home demolitions and denying them rights, education and to jobs and on and on and on. You
0: mentioned Netanyahu and um, I believe this was the interview he was having with Peterson um, and this is something that I hear a lot from from, you know, the the Zionist perspective of, oh, when it's not even just, you know, that the Arabs were the aggressors. They're very intent in saying that when we came to that land, there were no Arabs. It was like deserted land, kind of like a place left in shambles. There's a lot of these things that are said. And when you look at it from a historical perspective, they're complete lies. It's like there's no truth to them. And it's surprising that people actually buy this stuff. Um, from, you know, what the, you know, the West likes to call Israel as like the biggest democracy in the Middle East. It's it's quite laughable that such things are so easily accepted when history really paints a very different picture.
1: Yes, and there actually, there's a lot of documentation. I mean, you have to be, you have to be really ignorant to not to realize that Palestine was a thriving populist country, you know, with a strong economy with a political life, with a very strong culture, very diverse, very tolerant, you know, go, going back as long as far as history can, can record. You know, entire cities were taken. How much does right. that cost? What do you get for that? Entire cities. You know, Haifa, Ramle, Lid, Yaffa, Jerusalem. I mean, on and on and on. Entire cities, buildings, roads, agricultural, uh, you know, I mean, produce on the fields. People had money in the banks. Money was stolen. Automobiles, you name it. I mean, they stole everything. The land was, was, mm-hmm. the land was, was cultivated. Jaffa oranges, where do they come from? You know, they're exporting the olive praises, and oil. A lot, yeah. I mean, they're exporting citrus. I mean, Palestine was a thriving economy. And What's interesting is that they were exporting to the rest of the world as Palestine. And every map exactly. and every document under the sun called the country Palestine until May 15, 1948, the world forgot. And this long, rich history and culture suddenly disappeared from people's memory. And everybody decided to call it Israel
0: the social amnesia, the political amnesia is real, because as you said, these people knew exactly what the case was. And it's almost like the whole history was erased and rewritten in a very different narrative um, with the kind of winners and the heroes of the situation being painted as you know, the, the ones who are after the the freedom and the peace and the democracy, whereas those who are actually living there were completely forgotten. The Palestinians in some ways um, are, are the forgotten people. Um, because, as you're saying, a lot of these things that you're saying would be considered and are considered international war crimes. They are things that would never be accepted if they were done to any other population, especially those that, you know, have the luxury of being backed by Western nations and the power and the wealth. Um, one thing that, that I was curious about, I know your your father um, became a very fierce defender of Palestinian rights. You yourself, you are. I believe you have also mentioned you've been arrested a couple times uh, for the work that you've done. How... How was that experience? How was it to have to undergo the kind of consequences of what you say?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's part of the job, I suppose. It's part of, it's a part of the you know, it's, it's part of the reality. I mean, um, first of all, let's clarify when an Israeli gets arrested, it's not like a Palestinian getting arrested. I mean, right there and then we could be, well, we were in the exact yeah. same place doing the exact same thing. Palestinian gets thrown in a Jeep, gets beat up, gets handcuffed and, and, and blindfolded. And nobody knows when he, when he or she are coming back. Exactly. You know, we get handcuffed. Sometimes we're put in a Jeep, we're offered water and coffee, and then we're sent to a police station where there's already a call, phone call from our lawyers already waiting.
0: Right. Especially if you're a general son, right?
1: Well, regardless, regardless, I mean, the father has not been a general for a long time, but regardless, if you're in Israel, you have rights. And I talk about this in the book. In one particular case, the I was at the police station in, in the settlement of Kiryat Arba in Hebron, because the army arrested me and they gave me the police, but they didn't bring the paperwork with the charges or whatever, some technicality. Right. And the police chief at the station said to the soldiers, Look, he's not some Arab I can just throw in a cell and throw away the keys and Israeli's got rights, I gotta process him properly. And you know, most wow. of the times by the end of the day we go home and then eventually maybe we might have to go in front of a judge but most times we don't it's not pleasant by any, by any stretch of the imagination but it's a small price to pay when you're privileged and you know that you're privileged at the expense of somebody else and you make a decision you either stand with palestinian brothers and sisters and resist or you don't there's nobody right. around here you know there's no room for solidarity i don't believe in solidarity you wear a t-shirt that says right. free palestine it doesn't help any palestinian i mean you know what i mean We're past that. Um, So if you participate in in the struggle, you're going to pay a price. Again, granted, the price that we pay as as privileged Israelis is nowhere near, uh, not even remotely near what Palestinians are paying.
0: Absolutely. And one I want to make one quick reference to you mentioned a turning point and how you kind of really start to think about all these things um, that kind of led to your journey of activism. You said in, um, in your speech that your niece was actually killed in a suicide bombing where I believe you said two young Palestinian men uh, killed themselves and a number of other people died. Your niece, who was very young, by the way, was um, a part of them. And the way you explained the way that your sister reacted in that situation, can you explain a little bit of that and why, that, why you considered that somewhat of a turning point in your journey?
1: Yeah, that well, was the beginning of my journey, really. Um, and it wasn't two, initially people thought it was two, actually three young Palestinians blew themselves up. You know, people talk about it like, oh yeah, there was suicide bombing. Well, what, well, 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 what, what is going on here? How, what, what, what in the world would bring three young, healthy men to blow themselves up and take the lives of other people? What's going on here? And the, 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 the strength and the greatness of my sister's comments was that she saw that immediately, well, there was the grief of, of, of seeing her daughter in the morgue, we didn't, didn't turn her. Didn't turn any blinders on. You know, she looked really clearly at what was going on. And she said, immediately, immediately. First of all, don't talk to me about revenge and retaliation, because no real mother would want to see this happen to any other mother. And number two, right. what do we expect when we treat people like this? That there's not going to be retaliation that they're not, someone's not going to come out and, 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 and want to exact revenge. That we're not going to lose innocent people, and she pointed a finger straight at uh, the Israeli government. And Netanyahu was prime minister at the time, and he was right. a close friend of hers when they were young, so they knew each other well. And so uh, she pointed a finger right away and said, that, "You know, the Israeli government killed my daughter." Without right. any question. So to me, that was the start of my journey. I came back to the U.S. after that, and uh, you can't just go back to work the next day. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that that, that, that shakes you to the core. And so then i began engaging and becoming uh you know looking for ways to to engage and be active
0: i think it's really important you say that because um death on either side is very tragic but as you say yourself when we try to say we want to have a balanced story um hear both sides or like you say solidarity it's like saying the playing field is equal and now we're saying let's start having a conversation as equals but when one side has been treated as Nothing close to even an equal it 's really hard to say you can have a balanced outlook when there is no balanced playing field to begin with the two state solution is one of those things anytime people talk about peace talks or any kind of solution to this you know decades long issue is oh the two state solution is the way to go, and um, you are you 've spoken many uh, times about how that is not viable and it 's not the right solution. Why would you say so and what would you propose is the best way to go about this moving forward for the Palestinians specifically?
1: Well, I think if anybody thinks a two-state solution is a good idea, let them explain themselves. How is it a good idea? I have no, I don't understand how the two-state solution is a good idea. According to the two-state solution, which was a Zionist construct, that my father was part of the group of, of Zionists that, that invented it, if you will, after 1967, with the idea that Palestinians would get the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as a state and Israel maintained the the large portion of Palestine that was taken in nineteen forty eight. Right. How is that a good solution? Who's it good for? Why not the other way around? Exactly. Watching, you know what I mean? If you're gonna have a two state solution, who gets what? I mean why is it so clear to everybody that Palestinians should should now, that's to begin with. I mean it's it's inherently fundamentally flawed. The basic right. idea that Palestinians should somehow agree to something like this is fundamentally flawed. Today, all these years later I mean, Israel made no, 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 no secret of the fact that they did everything they possibly could, so that would never be a possibility. Exactly. And the argument initially by people like my father was, well, if we don't compromise on the West Bank, then we're going to end up with a bi-national state, and then it's going to be either apartheid or a democratic country, which won't be a Jewish state. So today we're at that place. Today we have one state all of, all, over all of Palestine. There's one state, it's the apartheid state of Israel.
0: Exactly. But if right. we
1: oppose apartheid, if we believe in human rights, if we believe in freedom, if we believe that the Palestine should be free, then we need to struggle with the Palestinian brothers and sisters to free Palestine, bring down Zionism, like apartheid was brought down in South Africa, establish exactly. a free democratic Palestine and, and, and make sure that we have mechanisms in place. So that the right of return can begin immediately, not as a bumper sticker slogan, but right. can materialize, and, you know, mechanisms have to be put in place immediately to see that the refugees are able to return and be compensated and be paid reparations. But I mean, the whole idea of a two-state solution is, 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 is ridiculous. It's flawed. I mean, it difficult. is
0: really ridiculous. And I think a lot of people have started to, to realize that as well. Because, um, like you said, the one thing that remains here is you can't expect a system that has come into place for a very specific reason, and we're talking about Zionism here, you can't expect the system to suddenly start performing differently than it was designed to. But do you think that's realistic to expect? Do you think something like that will materialize in the near or even far future? What we're seeing now is, you know, Zionism itself is backed Fully by the West, um, you know, as you know, with people getting into politics, it's like being a being a Zionist and a Zionist supporter is something that you have to check off the list before you get into any position of power. How do you see that materializing realistically?
1: It's up to us. I mean, it's not going to happen on its own. If we act, if we get our act together, then it, it's realistic. If we don't, it's not, it's not, it's not going to be a miracle. You know, right. in Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., there's not a single Palestinian flag anywhere. And then, never mind a representation. Never mind an office that represents Palestinian interests, you know, or that pushes forward the Palestinian. There's nothing. If we permit that to go on, if we permit our our elected officials, our elected officials, to continue to support Israel, then of course nothing's going to change like people say well do you think bds is a good idea well, what do you mean is it about a big good idea it is a fundamental aspect of the struggle to free palestine now people say yeah exactly. but you know if i if i boycott israeli avocado, and homeless is that going to change Different? and make a difference no we're talking about boycotting israel we are putting pressure on, on the olympic committee that israel is not permitted to participate in the olympics and in fifa and in academic arenas and in cultural arenas and kick out is demand that israeli diplomats be kicked out and no, that's what boycott is We need to demand that there's sanctions, severe sanctions against the state of Israel. That's what BDS is about. Yeah, the avocados and the homos are important, but it's about these other bigger things that are going to make the difference. Now, are we going to act or are we going to sit around and wait for it to happen by somebody else? That will determine, Mm -hmm. that is going to determine whether or not it's going to happen sooner or later. It's really all up to us. And right now, I don't have to tell you this. I mean, the Zionists are 100 years ahead of us.
0: Right. They uh, are. And he, I think he, a part of it is also, like you said, a lot of people are used to, um, activism that's limited to, you know, the social media sphere of like posting things and then being like, all right, cool. I'm off the hook. I've done my part. Um, yeah. so I think I, that's, I know, that's...
1: I, I know, yeah, I know people that want to get awards for the fact that they're sitting on Facebook and, and hitting like whenever they see something Palestinian. And also the other thing is even the small few little organizations that exist here and there, you know, so if something happens, there's a protest It's too late. The protest should happen before something happens. We know there's going right. to be an attack on Gaza. We know that Palestinian children are going to be murdered in Gaza again. Why are we, mm-hmm. what are we doing sitting at home?
0: We can't entirely even put the blood. A lot of people like to say, you know, it's, you know, the Muslims are doing everything, it's the rest of us. Muslim communities really have a long way to to support the Palestinians as well. Because one thing we also see with Muslim communities is a lot of them will purposely avoid having that conversation because of politics. They will avoid, you know, they might even invite You know zionist members people who have openly endorsed zionism people who are very clear with their uh you know who they're endorsing in their allegiance and they'll still have them come to the community and it's like what message are we sending to our people when we do that right
1: well the truth is i mean muslim communities used to but if you see my other book injustice the story of the holy land foundation that's why muslims today are afraid to talk about palestine You know, these, the the Hoyland Foundation was closed down. Five good men were sent to, sent to federal prison on terrorism charges. They were the finest men you will ever meet. Not only were they not, wouldn't dream of supporting terrorism. They had nothing to do with this, but still they were targeted and they, they paid a heavy price. So nobody wants, so people are afraid of that. The other part of the Muslim equation are the Muslim countries. Israel is heavily in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Pakistan, lobbying, and there are forces in all of these countries saying why don't we normalize why do we need to be you know it's exactly. good for us to work with israel why should we work and they don't know you know so i was involved in a campaign in indonesia they asked me to you know because an israeli team was going to play there and right. you know and I was in malaysia many many times to- several times and even people in pakistan are saying well why why not normalize with israel you know and and the pressure is great i mean biden biden nominated a full ambassador a full ambassador to go and convince these countries to normalize relations with israel I mean, it's working
0: because a lot of them do have that relation. And in Africa
1: too, the same thing in Africa. This is African countries were big supporters of Palestine. Now there's, you know, the ones that were, are destroyed, not just in Africa, but I mean, you know, Libya is destroyed and Iraq is destroyed and Yemen is destroyed. And Syria, I mean, all these countries that did support. Um, but Israel has got over 40 diplomatic missions in Africa. There's no Palestinian voice anywhere countering this. And that's why we're in the state that we are. So what can people do? Talk about it. Push this around. Don't be afraid to, to, to challenge the elected officials.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I do think you are you definitely as uh, as a person, as an activist, as an author have, I would say, very much contributed to this conversation and, you know, promoting, you know, Palestinian rights and speaking about the injustices that are happening. Um, so thank you for that as well. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really benefited from your words and your insight.
1: A pleasure. Thank you.